Hey, podcast listeners, going to tell you real quick about the California Gold Surf Auction coming up here with bidding on July 25th and the auction closing August 8th. That's a Saturday, August 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And lots will close in succession every two minutes. You can preview all the lots now, CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. Bidding begins July 25th at 5 p.m., and the auction closes Saturday, August 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have over 60 exciting auction lots for you to bid on. Check it out, CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. Now, on to the podcast. Randy Rarick, steward of professional surfing on the North Shore, no easy feat, and he did so for over 45 years, quite the diplomat. Something tells me he still gets called upon for sage advice. And Rarick, also a founding patriarch of the current vintage and collectible surfboard marketplace. I was going to write or attempt to write some sort of eloquent opener for this podcast but I decided instead to read from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing because there's no way I'm going to do anything better than this. Here we go. And I quote from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. Randy Rarick moved with his family to Honolulu at age five, began surfing at age 10 under the tutelage of fabled beach boy rabbit Kakai. In 1970, Rarick was invited to the Duke Hanamoku Classic and the Smirnoff Pro-Am. Rarick began making annual visits to South Africa in 1971. In the decades to come, the ruddy-faced regular foot traveled to coastlines near and far. Rarick was the only candidate when Bruce Brown hired a location scout in 1992 for his new movie, Endless Summer 2. Surfing Magazine later named Rarick the sport's most traveled surfer, noting that he'd ridden waves in over 60 countries. Rarick in 1976, at age 26... Joined forces with 1968 world champion Fred Hemmings, and both were the principal organizers of the International Professional Surfers, a.k.a. IPS World Circuit. This was the precursor to the ASP, Association of Surfing Professionals, and then eventually to what we have now, the World Surf League, WSL. Hemmings, for the most part, dealt with contest sponsors and the media, Rarick was a liaison to the pros themselves and general troubleshooter. Rarick went on to become an ASP board member and head of the Triple Crown of Surfing. Long known as one of the sport's most reliable figures, Sports Illustrated writer Bruce Jenkins wrote of Rarick, and I quote, Of all surfers who made a difference over the past 30 years, Rarick's among the handful who never changed. He never took drugs, never bailed out, never lost his stoke, never stopped ripping, end quote. Rarick shaped surfboards, a craft he learned as a teenager from master Hawaiian shapers George Downing and Dick Brewer. In the late 60s and 70s, he worked for Surfline Hawaii, Dewey Weber Surfboards, and Lightning Bolt, and made boards for big wave rider Buzzy Trent, 1972 world champion Jimmy Bleers, and Hawaiian surf icon Rel Sun, among others. 
From 2001 to 2011, Randy Rarick produced and curated the Hawaiian Islands Vintage Surf Auction. In 2015, Randy Rarick was elected to the Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame. There you have it. Quite a run. A legendary statesman for surfing and a mentor of mine. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Mr. Randy Rarick, let us begin. I'm recording right now. Randy Rarick, welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. Hey, Scott. It's always a pleasure to be out. I haven't been on for a while, so uh, good to be back. Tell me, how is the COVID-19 situation on the North Shore? Well, I'm going to be really selfish and tell you it's unbelievable. Um, when it, they had the lockdown here, everybody you know, had to stay home. And I live at Sunset Beach, and with pre-COVID, it used to take me a half hour to 45 minutes to drive to Haleiwa. I did it in 12 minutes because there was no one on the road. It's like living here in the 60s again. So it's really nice in that sense. There's no tourists, no traffic, and we're loving it. But unfortunately, about a third of the workforce in Hawaii is out of business. So everybody's going surfing. The lineups have been packed with uh, locals and uh, the surf shops here have done super well with uh, hard goods sales because everybody's buying new boards and everything. So only neat thing is, you know, everybody in the lineup. So even though it's crowded, it's pretty fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Here it's packed too. I think it's packed around the world. I think lineups are crowded everywhere. Here you, you don't know anybody. It's a, a bunch of newbies. Um, and the etiquette and the lineup etiquette is a little bit off, I've noticed. Do you notice that in Hawaii or no? Oh, yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a funny little story. Just last about three weeks ago, we had a little out of season swell here on the North Shore. And this group called Frothing Moms all came out. What it is is a bunch of women surfers who get together on social media and say, okay, let's all meet at such and such a time and such and such a break. And so it's about a little three, four foot day at uh, sunset and kind of out of season swell. And about 25 women surfers showed up at once. (laughs) <laughs> and talk about no etiquette. I'll tell you, you go out there with two dozen women, and uh, it was quite classic. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, luckily, like I said, they're pretty much all locals because there's no tourists here. They've got the quarantine ban. You have to quarantine for 14 days. So we're only getting like 500 tourists a day that show up as opposed to 35,000 that used to come pre-COVID. So uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. But uh, the surf's still there, so can't complain about that. What is the government saying about lifting the uh, quarantine and allowing the the tourist industry to to rev back up? Well, they were going to open up on August 1st, but because of the spike in cases on the mainland and then to some extent here, I mean, you got to realize here in Hawaii, we've had a total, I'm saying total cases of about 1,300. That's it. Only 1,300. I think like 19 people have died here. So they've really done a great job, probably the best of the nation, of keeping the COVID out. But they're worried if they open up to tourism, you know, they'll bring it in from wherever they come. So they have a, if you test 72 hours in advance, you can come in with no quarantine. If you haven't tested, you have a 14-day quarantine. And they're being pretty strict. They've been busting a lot of people and putting them on a plane and sending them back if they don't uh, adhere to the quarantine. So now the governor a couple of days ago announced that they pushed it back till September 1st. So supposedly on September 1st, you'll be able to fly into Hawaii and not have to quarantine uh, if you have a pre-test that's negative, obviously. 
Well, you know, you probably saw that the WSL announced um, basically a new format for the World Championship Tour. And it looks like they're going to start the season in December in Hawaii. I did not see any mention of the Triple Crown. Um, do you have any insights on that? Um, Sorry about that. Um, yeah, they, you know, they, they wanted to um, sacrifice something of the season. So, you know, they're hoping by December, you know, travel restrictions will be listed and lifted and they can at least do the pipe masters and the idea. And as they said, you know, to start here in Hawaii, cause they want to, um, you know, have something going on, I guess. And then uh, finish up in, in, I believe they want to finish in trestles. So I'm not sure how, that will pan out in terms of, you know, fan excitement. But uh, I think if, you know, they are able to do the pipe masters, at least they've got something to show for it. And the neat thing about the pipe masters this year, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the event. And um, for what that's worth, you know, we started that way back in 1971 and uh, it's the longest running pro event in the world. Bell's beach events been going longer, but that was an amateur event up until about 73, they went pro. So Pipe Masters longest running pro event, and hopefully they will be able to pull it off this year. Yeah, just tell me, let's just start here. Tell me a little bit about the first year of the Pipeline Masters. What was your involvement? Well, way back in 1971, uh, the contest on the North Shore with the Duke uh, Kahano Moko Invitational was the, the event at Sunset Beach. And they would come out for about 10 days to film that event. And so Fred Hemmings decided, well, let's do something on the side to kind of give him something else to film. So he came up with a six person pipe master heat, just a, a one hour heat. And uh, they held it in a sort of mediocre day at, at pipeline. And it's a funny story where Lopez uh, took a look at the surf and said, ah, oh, there's no way they're going to run it. And he headed back into Honolulu and, um, they went ahead with a six man final. They actually added uh, Mike Armstrong to take Jerry's place. And uh, it uh, was a six man uh, card table on the beach and a couple folding chairs and, a, and Lord Tallyho Blairs with a bullhorn and uh, took one hour. And Jeff Hackman won it and uh, walked away with, I think, $1,000. And that was it. And what was your role in the first one? First one, I was, wasn't actually involved because I was off traveling. Um, the world. I took a two-year hiatus, and I was gone when uh, Fred had decided that I'd I'd surf prior to that in the Duke event. I surfed in the Smirnoff Pro, and then I left in '71 to go on a two-year uh, tour around the world. So I actually missed the very first uh, the first two. In fact, when is it that that you and Fred became partners in? I guess the IPS, what would become the IPS? Did, did Fred come up to you and go, hey, Randy, I need some help here. I, I can't do this by myself. How did this relationship no, form? No, what actually happened there was I, that two-year uh, travel period, which was basically um, 72 to 74, I was on the road, went to um, Europe, went to South Africa twice, went to South America, to Brazil, and I came back in uh, 75 and – I went, I approached uh, Fred and I said, Hey Fred, they need to do some sort of a rating system. So guys that are traveling and are coming from around the world can get into these events. And um, so we came up with the concept of back uh, counting all the events. And, uh, and so in 76 was the beginning of the IPS, which stands for international professional surfing. And uh, Fred asked me to be the first uh, director. And so we sort of teamed up on it and, uh, we went for it. So he, he 
was the front man. I was the guy behind the scenes. Right. And you mentioned the Smirnoff, you surfing in the Smirnoff. But tell me a little bit about the dead ahead Fred to stay at Waimea that was considered perhaps too big to surf. Well, what happened was the Smirnoff was sort of evolved into becoming the, the premier event in the early 70s. And uh, I'd, I'd surfed in it in 70, 71. And uh, the first one was actually held over at Makaha, and that young one, that one. And back in those days, we could be mobile, where we could pretty much go wherever we wanted. And then the one that was held at uh, Waimea Bay was uh, probably the first big, really big surf, you know, for any surf contest. And they pulled up there and, uh, you know, they were watching it and there was a couple of closeout sets and everybody went, oh, you know, half the guys wanted to go out. The other half the guys didn't want to go out. And Fred said, well, I'm, you know, if I paddle out and catch a couple of waves, then, then it's on. And that's where the coin, they coined the dead ahead Fred and uh, sort of stuck with him ever since. And so Fred paddled out and caught a wave. And were you there to see this? No, he threatened to do it, but he didn't have to. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. He said, look, I can paddle out. I can catch a wave. And Fred was still a really good surfer in the early 70s. And he probably would have done it and actually done okay. But uh, he kind of, uh, the, it was sort of a bluff and it worked. And then, of course, it went on to be uh, one of the most uh, recognized events. Reno Avalero ended up winning that event over Jeff Hackman. And it's funny, I went back over the, the heat sheets and uh, – there were some discrepancies in that, and it might have been that uh, Jeff actually should have won that event, but uh, Reno took the title, and uh, the rest is history. Wow, that sounds like some interesting uh, information there, a, a recount on the judge's tally. Yeah, well, you know, I've got all the history of pro surfing from the 70s right through till actually a few years ago when I retired, and I've got uh, a three-drawer uh, file cabinet just full of all the history and all the heat results and everything so whenever anybody wants to get some historical uh, information they usually come to me and um, Al Hunt who just retired from the WSL is their you know uh, tactician of all the all the results and everything he came over and spent about three weeks going through all my records and so he's got pretty much all the results of every pro contest from the 70s onward. So Al Hunt did some forensics on the Smirnoff event, and it could be that Hackman won that? Well, you know, it was questionable. And, you know, like I said, they don't have a video replay. So I'd say, you know, leave it a uh, sleeping dog's lie, and that'll be that. <laughs> Fair enough. Busting down the door, rabbit in the Cooey condo. Did that affect you as a promoter? Well, what happened back in uh, it was sort of the busting down the door days, was you know there was a lot of Hawaiian pride and the um, the local guys you know kind of ran the show here and the Australians came on really strong and the guys like Ian Cairns and and Rabbit Bartholomew those guys you know strutted their stuff whereas other guys like Mark Richards just kept his mouth shut and let his surfing do the talking so he never had any hassle so it was more kind of a local pride versus uh, the one up in the ship of the Aussies. And I sort of was in the middle of that because I was trying to work with, with the surfers and, and being the, the uh, tour director at that time, I had to try to, you know, kind of walk a, a thin line between the locals and, and the foreign surfers. And I was really good friends with the Aussies and the South Africans because I had traveled during that 72 to 74 period before we started the tour. So um, you know, I think it was just a case of bravado and, and, you know, trying to assert themselves and strut their stuff. And so the Aussies, 
you know, kind of not that they got what they deserve, but the ones that acted that way, you know, definitely were reprimanded for their actions on the North Shore. Tell me about the pro-class trials. How did that evolve and what exactly was that? Uh, the pro-class trials was an interesting, um, actually, Bernie Baker came up with the name of that. And I had approached Fred Hemmings when I'd returned from my two-year sojourn around the world. And it was really interesting because I'd been gone for two complete years. And when I left, I was in the Smirnoff, I was in the Duke, I was in all the pro events. And two years, I sort of just dropped off the map and I came back. And, and I'll never forget, Ken Bradshaw had come to Hawaii. And uh, he, in that two-year period, he had kind of you know become somebody and asserted himself. And I rolled up. And it was in 75, and he's, he says, Rarick, things are different now. <laughs> and I, I like, I went, whoa, okay, Ken. And uh, the thing was, I wanted to get back in the Smirnoff, but having been gone for two years, I couldn't get in. So I approached Fred, and I said, Fred, if we run a qualifying event, will you take the top six guys and put them in the uh, event? And he says, sure, because those days they had six-man heat. So he said, I'll take one guy put them in each of the six heats there's 36 guys so we created this event for all the guys that weren't invited into the Smirnoff already and there were hot guys like uh, Barry Kanapuni and um, uh, I think the Icaos and uh, some Aussie guys that were up and coming and uh, so I actually was kind of self-serving for my part I created this event I actually qualified for the first two pro class trials and made it into the Smirnoff in 75 76 and uh that was the beginning of sort of what is the equivalent of the qualifying events nowadays. So like I said, Bernie came up with the name and uh, it stuck and we used that, you know, right through until the qualifying series actually got started. I mean, as I recall, the pro class trials really blew up at some point. You probably had 250, 300 guys trying to vie yeah, for spots. There was, it was, you know, how it was the, the only way for guys to get in. Cause you got to realize in the early mid seventies, it was who you knew, who, you know, what kind of coverage you were getting in the magazine. There was no real basis or qualifying way to get into these events other than if you were chummed up to the um, promoter. You should see the, the file I have on letters from guys writing to Fred Hemmings, you know, stating their case of why they should be put in the events. It's actually pretty funny. I should publish some of those. But uh, it was really the only way you could get in. And there was a lot of really good surfers that surfed in the trials for the first three or four years that uh, – you know, came through and qualified. Like I said, BK, he won it, I think, twice. Um, guys like, uh, I think, even Bobby Owens back in those days had to go through one. And so there was a lot of good surfers that surfed in the trials. Triple crown of surfing, did that evolve from the pro-class trials? Well, that was, the pro-class trials was kind of the the basis. Um, and then as the, you know, as the IPS grew, when, it, like I said, we started off, I think, in 76, we had maybe, 50 guys in a thing and in the next couple of years pro surfing just took off and exploded up to like 200 guys on the tour so uh, we had to have a means to qualify guys to get into the events because either that or you had these huge events with you know 200 surfers and it just took so long to run them and a lot of times the surf was crappy so the the it, it kind of like i said evolved into the uh, qualifying series events eventually so it, it took a few years though so, Randy, you've spent basically over four decades, maybe more, um, producing these surf events on the North Shore. You've got a confluence of individuals, pro surfers, uh, North Shore 
power brokers, event sponsors, county officials, lifeguards, the media, they're all trying to get a piece of you. Talk a little bit about the difficulties of running an event on the North Shore. <laughs> uh, I could use that a week to talk about all that, but back then, luckily I grew up here in Hawaii, so being a Haole Hawaiian really helped understand the local psyche, and I knew how to deal with the locals because I knew what they wanted. And basically, in a simple word, they just wanted respect. And um, a lot of times, it wasn't about you know who was the better surfer. It was just purely showing respect, coming to Hawaii. And you know, there's the spirit of aloha here, which is still alive and well. And back then, it was even more so. And the Hawaiians themselves generally are really good people and, and they're really welcoming and you know they'll, they'll share with you and so that was something that was there so the idea of the, you know the surfers coming and taking away too many waves and being brash and being that you know resulted in the issues that happened like I said in the busting down the door days and then you had the beginning of the surf industry this is when we first started in the 70s there really wasn't any surf industry and then budding companies like Rip Curl and Quicksilver and Billabong were all just getting started. And they had an interest in developing pro surfing because it was going to develop the, the base for which their customers would come from. So you had the, the locals, you had the touring surfers, you had the surf industry that was in its infancy. And you had companies, like I said, Billabong, Rip Curl, um, Quicksilver just getting going. And they had an interest in building pro surfing and then you had the local people here on the North Shore who, you know, it, some people, it was really split. Some people really liked the, the pro surfing because it brought people to the North Shore, which meant they rented houses, they uh, frequented the restaurants. And, and basically, surfing was the industry of the North Shore. And so I had to balance all this. And, and I live right at Sunset Beach. So I knew what the locals wanted local surfers wanted. And I knew what the traveling surfers wanted. And then since I was involved in the surfing here, I went, Kind of knew what they needed so it was really an interesting balancing act to do all this and quite honestly i don't know who else could have done this because i was in a unique position having grown up here knowing all the players and having traveled around the world i knew on a first name basis every one of the pro surfers in the 70s so it was uh, a unique position and so i worked with guys like fred hemmings and promoting the events and there was other promoters early on george downing uh, produced the American pro with Duke Boyd and there was the Duke people who were uh, a different group of promoters and I got along great with everybody and a lot of people say I was a great diplomat because uh, I never you know got mad at anybody never made a big deal out of it I just always felt like there was always a way to find a path that everybody got a little bit of something and that was sort of my philosophy if you gave everybody something maybe they didn't get all everybody got what they wanted but if they got something then you can move forward yeah Good stuff. Tell me about your favorite memory. Four decades of running pro surfing on the North Shore. You've got a favorite memory? You know, I've got really a lot. I mean, I think you have to sort of divide it up into different eras. I think the early 70s were great because um, it was really innocent. I mean, we, you know, we're talking basically about three or four dozen surfers from around the world, of which, like I said, I knew them all on a first name basis. And it was really a camaraderie deal where there wasn't much money. I mean, really you could get by pretty darn cheap in the 70s the rents were cheap and living costs were low and so there wasn't a whole lot of money involved so it was more of driven on passion so i would say the 
the early group of pros probably were the most exciting to deal with. Then we shifted into the 80s and the whole surf industry took off and you know the, the era of Dayglow and you know everybody booming and a zillion surf brands and, and everybody jumped on the bandwagon and and certain guys did really good. That's when the powerhouse you know brands like Quicksilver and, and Rip Curl all built the base for which they, they grew into. And so that was pretty fun to say. I remember PT saying, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire dancing on the tabletops, you know, from pro surfing. And well, <laughs> it took about <laughs> 20 years to get to that stage. But uh, I think the 80s were really fun. And then the 90s was kind of a consolidation. And then, you know, we got into really the commercialization of pro surfing and it became big business. I mean, it changed from sort of this backyard fun uh, budding, you know, industry to, you know, really big money coming into it. And, you know, some people lament that the money ruined the sport. I mean, I think it's a case of what it did. It, it, it grew, it grew from a lifestyle to a sport. And I think pro surfing, it, it was a change prior to that. It was surfing was just basically a lifestyle and pro surfing made it a, a professional sport. And whether you like that or not is, is debatable, but I think the fact that it made it in the Olympics says something that uh, 50 years of you know, professional surfing did something good for surfing. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about Sonny Garcia. It's a sweet guy, very sweet guy, but also a guy quick to sort of charge up the beach and approach the scaffolding and sort of unload. Was he the hardest guy to deal with as far as a, being a contest promoter or <laughs> well, I got to say, I had a love-hate relationship with Sonny. Um, I knew Sonny since he was 14 years old. I think the first contest he served in was the old Gotcha Pro at Sandy Beach. And he showed up as skinny, brash little local kid and, you know, basically made a statement early on that he was going to get what he wanted. And obviously, he did great. He went on and win six triple crowns. Um, a phenomenal surfer, very volatile at times, obviously. And I had my <laughs> share of you know, where he wanted to punch me in the face and uh, I had to stand my ground. I had that with Johnny Boy Gomes, with, uh, you know, Fast Eddie, with all kinds of guys here in the North Shore that were the heavyweight guys. And they all hated me because I was the voice of authority and I was the face that represented what they had to go up against. But I think what it did, it made them all hungrier and made them, you know, want to try that much harder. And like I said, through diplomacy, I never, ever, gotten a beef with anyone. I never got punched by anyone. I got a lot of threats. That's for sure. And, uh, but I learned what, once again, what they wanted. And if you can give them a little bit of something to what they wanted, you can get back from them high performance surfing, you know, excitement for the fans. And at the same time, occasionally, like in Sonny's case, he would be very successful. And, uh, you know, I never took any of that personally. I mean, the good thing was, I think it was back in 2015, both Sonny and I were inducted into the Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame. So we had to go to this big banquet and sit next to each other. And, you know, he looked at me, he said, you know, Randy, he says, you were a pain in the butt. But he says, I got to respect you. You got the job done. And uh, I've had that sort of reaction from a lot of the guys. So, you know, it comes to the territory and uh, you take the good or the bad. Tell me maybe a not so favorite memory from 45 plus years of, of being the the guy over there. Oh my gosh. There was, you know, so many times I had to make decisions where I mean, I remember that when we were, uh, I think it was the first Hawaiian pro when Bill LeBong was sponsoring it. And we moved down to Waimea and we we're setting up the stands. And one of the Brazilian guys, um, got caught inside and he got just thumped. I mean, just in a shore break and, and he, he literally got just washed up the beach and we thought he was dead. And I think it was, um, 
I forgot who it was. Somebody came running up and go, Oh my God, you know, you've just killed one of the contestants. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, what am I doing? Send these guys out. Another time we were at uh, pipeline. It was back in the days when we just, we could set up the scaffolding in like an hour. We had just had, you know, one tier of scaffolding. It was real simple. And it was just big and gnarly. We really, it was closing out. And I think same thing. It was the year that, uh, you know, I think it was Chris Lenny got hurt and then Beaver Massfeller got hurt. Yeah. And somebody came right up and said, you're killing people. You're killing people. Stop this contest. I'm like, oh, my God. And yeah. speaking of pipeline in that, those era, I remember the one time when Buttons, you know, dropped in and uh, we called interference time and all the local boys came and stormed the, the judge's tower. And it was like going to be a riot on the beach or a decision. And I, I think I went with a seven-man heat in the uh, – <laughs> Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then buttons went and dropped in again in the final i just shook my head and went oh my gosh you know <laughs> so it, it was things like that i mean some of them are funny some of them were scary and uh i mean literally 40 years nearly 40 years of running events you know i i saw it all and i probably saw i've seen probably more waves at pipeline than anybody else uh, at least from a competition point of view obviously and yeah. So it's been great. And, and I have no regrets. You know, I'm really proud of my contribution to build the IPS, which then evolved into the ASP, which then evolved into the current WSL. And, you know, here it is, like I said, this year, we'll celebrate 50 years of the Pipe Masters. So it's, it's been a good long run. So again, I'd bring up, do you think that what's your gut feeling on a triple crown running this year? I mean, if September one is the potential date that they're going to allow us to visit Hawaii that could easily get pushed to October based on data. Your thoughts on yeah, the triple, th triple crown this year? I think, you know, it's Vans is, is the sponsor for the whole triple crown. Vans wants to do a triple crown. WSL is probably going to modify it in some way. And a lot of it's on sort of tenuous hold because, you know, the main thing is they want to get the tour started with, you know, the, the pipe masters, obviously, but, but Hawaii, it's really important for the triple crown. So I think at this stage, it's a little question mark. I, I think it'll have to give it a couple months to see what pans out because one, like you said, travel restrictions, the guys that are going to compete, they all got to get here and they got to be able to fly in. And right now you can't, you know, Australia's got restrictions and New Zealand and, you know, there's Japan, there's no Japanese coming in. So, I mean, other than maybe from the West coast, uh, it, it, it may be hard to have a, a complete field and um, what, what exactly is going to happen. I think another aspect of that whole thing is what they're going to do about the women's tour. I mean, they really want to promote the women too. And I know Vans wanted to bring back the women's triple crown. We haven't had it for quite a few years simply because we couldn't get the permits. And that was another issue. There was so much demand for, there's only so many uh, competition days allowed at each spot on the North shore. And there's, I mean, we've got right now SUP, we've got bodyboard events, we've got amateur events, we've got other pro events that want to be part of it. And so it was hard to try to fit everything. And so I think right now it's a question mark hanging over all that in another two months. You probably have a lot clearer picture. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about pipeline, but um, I'm of the opinion, and you and I have spoke about this in the past, that Sunset Beach as a venue, certainly, yes, a part of the Triple Crown. But it's also a qualifying series event. Um, but Sunset Beach has been a CT event in the past. And I've always thought that Sunset Beach doesn't get the respect it deserves as far as a competitive location on the North Shore. Of course, Pipeline gets all the attention. Do you think this is a valid criticism? Do you think Sunset Beach should have, um, you know, a bigger part of the pie here? 
I, I certainly do. I mean, I live at Sunset Beach and surf here all the time. So for me, it, it traditionally has always been the best proving ground on the North Shore because it's a, such a harder wave to ride. I mean, pipelines are great tube, obviously, but it's not a hard wave to ride. Um, sunset, you know, can break on a variety of swell directions and sizes and what have you. And when it was the part of the, the WSL, well, or the ASP back in those days, guys like Parco and uh, Andy Irons used to really dominate out here. And I thought it was great. I mean, there's some great wins at Sunset in the World Cup event. And for, I think, three or four years there, it was part of the tour and really had a, an effect on who qualified. Um, I think what's happened is the media switched their focus so much to pipeline. I mean, every time there's a swell, you don't see pictures of sunset. You always see pictures of pipeline. And I think the media, it's partially media driven. And I think it's also partially driven with the, the tour competitors who don't spend a lot of time in Hawaii or really don't like sunset. And they've had an influence on making the decision on which events are in and which events are not. And so yeah. It's a lot more politics, I think, involved than it is practicality. But if I agree with you, I think if it was part of the World Pro Tour, it would be a, a great asset, and I'd love to see it back to it. One of the problems, if it goes that route, if it was, let's say, Sunset and Pipeline were the last two stops on the World Tour, the problem is how do you qualify guys on the North Shore? And as I said a little bit earlier, there's only so many permits, and you can't get any other you know, qualifying events in and also scheduling-wise, at least in the past, they've always tried to um, finish the event up by Christmas. And really, the season gets going in November. And probably the best time of the year on the North Shore is end of uh, December into early January. So by then, it, the tour is over with. So it's a, it's a combination of politics, um, permit applications, and, and just being able to schedule events on the North Shore. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I get it. I just am disappointed. I think back to those days of, you know, whoever it was, Rabbit or Kong or whoever, rolling up the windows on a late drop at the West Peak of Sunset. To me, that summarizes what the North Shore is all about. I, I totally agree. I'm 100% agreeing with you. So we'll put that out to the WSL. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. I'm going to uh, switch gears here with you. Let's talk auctions. You've um, basically been at the forefront of vintage surfboard auctions for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how did your interest in vintage surfboard auctions come about? Where did, where did all this begin? Well, I have to give you a quick little background. Um, as I said, I grew up here in Hawaii. When I was 11 years old, I walked into the old, yeah, for a short term, Velzi had a, a manufacturing operation here. And I was 11 years old, and I walked into that, and I, there were glassing boards, and I, the smell of resin was intoxicating. And I said, at 11 years old, I want to make surfboards. And uh, I started, I made my first board when I was uh, 12 years old. And then I started fixing dings in uh, my neighborhood. And, and my neighborhood was a pretty hot bit of town. There was Jerry Lopez lived down the road. Um, Mark Cunningham lived there. Mark Fu was my paper boy. So the area I lived in, which was southeast uh, Oahu, kind of around the corner from Diamond Head, was a real hot bit of talent. And I was the guy who fixed everybody's dings. And, uh, doing so I got really good at it and I actually got a job working at a shop called Surfline Hawaii when I was 14 years old I got hired and uh, I worked my way through high school so I probably worked on about 10,000 surfboards in my high school days and uh, really became knowledgeable in all aspects of design and construction and uh, 
went on to become a shaver, open a surf shop, and then on and on and on after that. But so I had a real basis for an interest in classic boards. And then fast forward to the 90s, um, Danny Bronner, who is, was a color guy, glosser, uh, glosser for Hobie, he had sort of the first auction in the 90s where he took a bunch of old beat-up boards he had and he pigmented them all and what we call Easter egg them to death. And then he had an auction where he sold them off and it was kind of successful. And then Alan Seymour, who's the promoter out of um, San Clemente area, he saw that and saw the value of it. So he started doing surf auctions in conjunction with the old action sports retail show. So I went to a couple of his and then on the East Coast, Mike Miggs uh, had done, done an auction in the early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And so I went to all these guys' auctions, and I went, wow, these are pretty cool. You know, they're bringing out these old boards. And, you know, I knew everything about the boards and, and what have you. And I finally said, well, somebody should do one of these in Hawaii. And I did that for about two, three years in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s. And finally, in 2001, I decided to do one. And I started the uh, Hawaiian Island Vintage Surf Auction. And, 2001 and did that for the next 10 years up through uh, 2011 and then uh, as you know I hooked up with uh, Surfing Heritage and Cultural Center working with you on the uh, California Gold we created that and that was uh, took off and you're still doing a great job with it today so sort of that's a quick overview of my involvement. Well why is it do you think that vintage surfboards and the stories they tell are so important? Well I think you just summed it right up there they are the history of our sport in something that you can touch, hold, look at, even ride if you want to. And I think it's so important, and I think surfers out there should realize that the equipment, particularly you know the boards, are what made our sport. And you can see the history of our sport in the designs and the progress. It's kind of like looking at cars. You know, you see cars that started with a, you know, the first Model T and then the Model A, and then progressed through the years and how they came and changed and different brands and manufacturers and marquees came along. Well, it's very similar with surfboards. You have the wood boards from the ancient times and then the hollow boards through the thirties and forties and the balsa boards of the fifties. And then foam came along in the sixties and the longboards and then the shortboard revolution of the late sixties, early seventies and, and the progress through that. And then the technology kicking in today that we see. So just following all that along is fascinating. And any surfer who, who really believes in himself should know some history of the sport and the history of the sport is depicted through the boards that we rode. Yeah, exactly. Well stated. Um, of course I'm in full agreement and it made me think, you know, it's easy for us to go, Oh wow, <clears throat> man, if I could get my hands on a Kivlin chip or a Simmons, I'd be stoked. And it made me realize what's the board today right now that's maybe being built this week that if you owned that board, in 25 or 30 years, you'd be sitting on something pretty special. Any thoughts on that? You know, I, I think once again, you got to divide it up into different eras. And there's also the, the age demographics of who likes what. But um, there's always going to be certain boards that are going to be worth more money down the road based on what they are today. So you mentioned a Kivlin chip. So Kivlin and Joe Quigg. I think we're from California, the, the two designers that really pushed, you know, surfboards to evolve from the big plank boards to the uh, kind of more Malibu chip type style. 
And then you got guys in Hawaii like George Downing and Wally Froissett who, who took the, the guns and wrote an early Makaha. And then you get into the 70s and guys like Brewer who designed North Shore guns that worked and, and on and on and on. And you've got different nationalities, different locales that, that influence where surfing. And a good example is take Jerry Lopez. In, in 68, Jerry Lopez who was really nobody other than a decent good surfer. But by 69, Jock Sutherland joined the Army and opened the door for Jerry to step in and ride pipeline. Jerry adopted uh, Mike Hinson's down rail boards and all of a sudden was able to hold his edge in the tube. And by 1971, he was Mr. Pipeline. So the boards that Jerry rode dictated his style, which allowed him to become one of those famous surfers of his air. And if you can find one of those boards, you've got a bit of history there. And it, you can go forward and backwards. And so every generation is developing uh, a surfer who rides a design that is going to become a, a future collectible basically would you think that maybe like a a foil board like a board and in fact the foil itself would be something i mean we don't know so i'm just like future guessing here but it was just suggesting perhaps it's something as random as a foil yeah, I think there'll be an early foil that will emerge to be the foil. And uh, when we look back on that, somebody will say that that's the board that, you know, changed foiling. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like, um, you know, when some of the early uh, strap boards from toe surfing, same thing. There, You know, there's a couple that are re regarded as sort of the, the, the groundbreaking board that made the design and that's a little bit maybe of an offshoot more not not quite as mainstream as just a regular stand-up surfboard tell me about the greg Knoll surfboard you and i sold for forty two thousand dollars do you think that's the highest price ever paid um i think that's pretty much top end for auctions that have happened in the last uh 15 20 years the uh what what you have to have is something that's really got a lot of provenance and a lot of importance to it. Uh, we had a redwood plank that John Kelly had learned to surf on. And I think that was one of the high uh, dollar boards from my auctions, you know, over the course of 10 years. And there's a couple other ones like Jerry Lopez's board that he wrote in big Wednesday. And it's very uh, documented. So there's certain iconic boards from certain airs that um, really go up there, but I'd say, Low 40s is probably the, the top end for uh, collectible boards. If I asked you hypothetically to name the perfect 10-board collection for you, Randy, what's the perfect 10-board Randy Rarick collection? It's really tough to pick the best 10 boards. It's like saying, what are the best 10 surfers? Obviously, you're going to have favorites, and you're going to... Um, well, this is your collection, though. This is just for you. What's your, what's your favorite collection look like? Um, you know... Start off with, I'd have to go back to the early days. I probably would pick a Wally Froissett uh, gun because Wally was, in my opinion, sort of the unsung hero of, of designs for guns. He uh, really affected George Downing's designs and, and George and Wally protect, uh, perfected the, the guns that rode Makaha, which were the predecessors to the North Shore ones. And then you move to the North Shore. I would probably pick a... Um, Jeff Hackman ridden sunset gun that would could have been shaped by a variety of different guys because Jeff was getting so many good boards and really pushing the limit. So uh, a Jeff Hackman owned sunset board would be something that I would have on my list. 
Um, I'd love to have Nat Young Sam that he rode in the 1966 World Contest because I was the last guy to see that board. I it got sent from California to Surfline in Hawaii, and I actually fixed the dings on it, looked at it super hard, and then the board went out the door and has never been seen since then. So I'd love to have Sam in my collection. Hmm. Um, I think a uh, Tom Parrish lightning bolt. I think Parrish was the best shaper of the entire lightning bolt stable during its era. And uh, if you look at his lines, he's got the cleanest lines of all the bolts. And uh, I think you definitely have to have a Parrish bolt in your collection. Um, I kind of like some of the weird boards that were transition boards from the short board or the long board to the short board. A couple of them pretty neat. It'd be really fun to have a, a early down rail uh, Henson, what he called a breakaway rail. I think that's kind of a, maybe not a highly collectible board, but in terms of design, that's really interesting to me. Um, then you start, you know, getting more into the modern era. I think the uh, Larry Bertelman twin fin is something that everybody should have simply because, you know, the rubber man was in my opinion, one of the best transition surfers to really high performance shortboarding. Kind of backtracking again, I think it'd be really neat to have a, a classic old wood board that, was pre uh, glue glue up a day so maybe a, a, a wood plank that had been re redone to a hot curl perhaps that would be kind of cool so I don't know you know like I said Scott I've probably looked at a hundred thousand surfboards and I've had them pass through my hands I felled them looked at them and as a shaper and a surfer I really like to look at the design and everything and I just really appreciate nearly everyone and People think I have an incredible collection and you'd have to laugh. I only own like three boards. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of them is a, a 1971 510 that I shaped at Surfline Hawaii. It was one of the first boards I, sh I shaped and I kept that as a, a personal memento. I have a Greg Knoll cat model that, that uh, Greg made for me personally. And I, I've kept that all the time. I had the very last um, Harbor cheater that Rich Harbor shaped and he did it for me personally. So the boards I kept are not so much highly collectible as they are personal, um, mean something to me. And so I think that's what you do when you collect boards. You collect them because they mean something to you and, and you like them and you look like to look at them. And, and there's nothing worse than having a collector that stashes all his boards away in, in his garage or in a storage shed and doesn't pull them out and appreciate what he's got. Well, very interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to leave with this, Randy. Um, I, I find it interesting. You always seem to be connected to people in history and I'm going to throw some names at you and maybe you have a quick anecdote about each one of these guys. Duke Kahanamoku. I was lucky enough to uh, meet Duke when I was uh, 16 years old and he sat me down in Waikiki for about 20 minutes and talked to me. And I got to tell you that it really affected the rest of my life because he said, if you show people respect and you listen to them, then they will listen to you. And I've used that as a mantra from the rest of my life. So Duke uh, had a presence amongst everybody and certainly Hawaii and, and he affected me personally. How about Reynolds Wright? Oh, Reynolds guy. He was a classic character. Um, you know, I think he represented that happy Hawaiian. He was one of those guys that you'd love to surf with, love to be around and always had a smile and a good laugh on his face. And I love surfing with Reynolds. John Wayne? Well, I didn't really know John Wayne. And uh, other than being uh, kind of a man's man, I guess uh, he's somebody you probably want to look up to. <laughs>
William Finnegan. You know, I, I met Bill, but I don't know him very well. And what's interesting in his book, uh, Barbarian Days, is almost, uh, the early days at least, was a, a real mirror of what I had done. I'm a little bit older than him. And he went to school and what he encountered when he was first getting involved in surfing was very similar to the what I went through. And, uh, and uh, so for me to be able to read especially the early years of his book were uh, almost like looking at a mirror for me because I'd already experienced the same thing as he did. Don Ho. Oh, Don Ho. I remember <laughs> when he was, <laughs> when we had the first couple Duke meets and, and Kimo McVeigh was the promoter, they would, they had a, a club called Duke Hanamoko's, which was a nightclub and Don performed there. And many a time I saw him drink more than a lot of tiny bubbles. So uh, he was a character. Yeah. Okay, last one, Rolf Arness. You know, I actually knew Rolf pretty good. He and I surfed together along with Brad McCall. We were all together in uh, Australia for the 1970 World Contest. I was on the Hawaii team, and Rolf obviously went on to win. And uh, I got to know him pretty well and his dad. And his dad really pushed him to the point where when he did win the world title, I think Rolf decided to branch off and kind of become his own man and not in the shadow of his dad. And uh, had some, uh, you know, unfortunately, lifestyle choices that probably weren't the best. But uh, I thought a really good surfer, really stoked. And one of those guys that um, redirected his stoke from surfing into other things. And unfortunately, I thought we kind of lost a, a really good surfer too early to, uh, like I said, bad lifestyle choices. Well, Randy, I've got my auction coming up here in a couple of three weeks. You've got also, we've got Mike Miggs's auction on the East Coast. So we've got some exciting auction stuff happening. I appreciate you coming on the show here today. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I'm stoked that you're still doing the California Gold. I think for the listeners out there, uh, once I, again, I said the, the history of our sport is sort of laid out in the boards we ride. And, and I got to commend you for continuing the California Gold auction because I think it's really important. And since I stopped doing my auction back in 2011, now you sort of picked up the torch and, and carried it and run with it. And I'm really, really glad to see that. And that's the same thing with Mike Miggs. Mike been out of the action for like 20 years and he's getting back into it for the East coast. So I think for the collectors and the aficionados out there, it shows a good sign that there's interest that people still want stuff. And uh, I got to commend you for going out there and hustling and tracking it all down. Cause believe me, I know what a lot of work it is. So I hope it's successful and I hope you do good with that. Well, thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. And, um, and I look forward to seeing you and chatting with you again soon. Thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you too. Aloha. It ain't nobody's business. If I do Some of these days I'm going crazy Buy me a shotgun Shoot my baby It ain't nobody's business If I do If I 
to take a lotion Go down and jump in the ocean It ain't nobody's business If I do If I do And if I attend church on Sunday And cabaret all day Monday Well, it ain't nobody's business If I do Ain't nobody's business If 
if I do 